Hello, guys. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. This is Emmett, and I am here with multi-guest Canada Mike. What's up, bro? I, I like that. So much. I'm ready to get us banned here. Censored. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. So today we're going to be looking at vaccine stuff. I think so listeners that have been with us for a while, I think as we started to crest in popularity towards the end of 2020, and then it dipped a little bit at 2021, and now it's it's back up. You guys probably came to us because of our supply chain stuff in terms of not just manufacturing, but specifically how the vaccine rollout was going to go. And Mike had some great insider dope on what that situation was. We did some follow-ups in the Patreon, and we haven't done another public one. So we thought we would do another public one for everybody because it seems to be getting weird finally now that Delta's here and people are wondering if the booster shots are going to show up or how this is going to go. We're getting some leaks, some of like Pfizer's agreements and stuff like that. And we've got some more data on the effectiveness of the vaccines. So I'm going to like front run a bunch of potential criticism. This is also for the FBI and CIA. I got Moderna. So did my wife. I don't regret it. From the data we've seen, it, it seems like The vaccines have done a decent job of decoupling infection from death, especially, and in some cases, largely from hospitalization. That's great. That's probably the best you could hope for in an emergency use authorization, probably, but maybe I'm wrong about that. So now that the intelligence agencies are no longer listening to me, why don't we get into what are actually like granular problems or different things that uh, we need to talk about. Mike, did this or did it not melt down the way that we were talking about earlier? Because earlier we were saying there were single use systems, which those who weren't here last time, that basically means like one and done use, use systems for just disposable systems for creating vaccines, right? That's the simplest way to do it without walking through all of it again. And Mm -hmm. there are the big like fermentation style things with all the stainless steel that are hard to maintain. They're big industrial projects basically. And there are less and less of those because single use system works really well with the neoliberalized globalized supply chain. And you have to shell out a lot of capital for the big fermentation things. Our hypothesis was that because big pharma had shifted so much to single use systems, they were going to have compounding supply chain issues and reproducibility problems because of the fineness of the equipment, the standards regimes within each country shifting sometimes without other countries knowing it, and the general strain on supply chain issues throughout while the rest of the world was also scrambling to get a vaccine done. That's, I think, the best summation I can do of what we've been talking about. So what's happened? Yeah, I I think that's a, a good summary. And the short answer is that the meltdown is ongoing. So from an American perspective, it doesn't look like there's a supply problem. And that's in part because Americans to their, I'm just going to say it, to their great credit, have an independent mind. And many of them have chosen not to take the vaccine and are not going to take the vaccine from all appearances. 
So whether or not you agree with that choice, that's, that is the choice that many Americans seem to have made. And you have domestic production in America, which makes a big difference. America's in- wealthy, which also makes a big difference. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like Pfizer and Moderna doing their best to acquire as much of that wealth as they possibly can over this process. The thing that I, I think I said was not going to be possible at all was to deliver for the entire world a vaccine on the schedule that would be necessary in order to have everyone vaccinated in the world and then meet whatever type of variant production process needs to be ramped up as variants crop up. And that's absolutely true. That's what's happened. People are interpreting that in all kinds of weird ways. Like you see a lot of stuff about like vaccine nationalism and vaccine apartheid and these kinds of things. These there there is definitely like a wealth or a, a wealthy country aspect to this, but I'm not sure that's the whole story. If I think you were to ask Americans whether they thought it would be a good idea for Thermo Fisher to ship a whole bunch of single-use systems to India during the height of their infection wave, which is what they were asking for. If Americans were apprised of the consequences for their own supply chains, they would probably say, no, like we want our own domestic production to meet our own domestic needs. And so that's like vaccine nationalism, right? If you have domestic production of these vaccines, as well as maybe not the highest demand, then you're not going to see the supply problem. But there are all kinds of jurisdictions that don't have domestic production of these vaccines, including Canada. And we have had significant supply problems. If the goal is uh, to get everyone vaccinated before variants start uh, cropping up. And, okay, we can talk about the other kinds of limits on that later. I think that's sufficient to answer in general, is this actually happening? Is there a supply constraint? Yeah, there absolutely is a supply constraint. Now, I I actually just got some interesting information from someone involved in purchasing for one of the vaccine manufacturers. And this I did not know, but they are now claiming this. So the suppliers of single use systems and filtration components, all of the kinds of disposables that go into the manufacture of biopharmaceuticals. They are now claiming that they will be under like financial and legal penalties on the terms of the operation warp speed operating contracts, which are still how they're getting paid if they don't give their components to operation warp speed manufacturers. So in other words, the suppliers who give the fermenter components to everyone who makes biopharmaceuticals are now telling even vaccine companies for other kinds of projects go pound sand, you're never going to get these components. Like, And th- these are not just the fermenters themselves. Uh, in particular, it looks like uh, tangential flow filtration components, which are forming like the downstream purification process for many new processes. Those are not available at all for many of these manufacturers for projects that are not coronavirus vaccines. Okay, so this is something... That is, I, I think I've just actually finally fully processed this tonight, thinking about it. What happened here is quite amazing. You mentioned the Pfizer contracts with that have been leaked. Some unnamed South American um, country. There have been other contracts that have been leaked. All of these are secret, of course, with Canada and other countries. And the long and the short of it is the vaccine manufacturers have zero liability for anything, including failing to deliver at all, any type of... So it's Indiegogo for 
doing or like yeah, Kickstarter for right, their- right, yeah, yeah. Like I actually probably Kickstarter is probably easier to recover your money. I'm just saying something, but yeah. So they have no no liability. The the state that is the par- counterparty to the contract has infinite liability, unlimited liability for something like failing to pay. For instance, if they didn't deliver the the doses, which they don't have any liability for, that's very interesting that this is happening. And at the same time, the suppliers to the vaccine manufacturers are going to, at least saying, they're at least telling personnel within these corporations that they're going to be penalized financially, that they're absolutely on the hook if they don't sell all of their components to those uh, same vaccine companies. So there's just total asymmetry in the contracts where now it's actually, it's, it's not like big pharma in general, right? This is really, especially in the Anglosphere, this is Pfizer and Moderna. And to a lesser extent, AstraZeneca. I think AstraZeneca and Jay have been thrown under the bus a little bit, actually. So there's a very weird kind of corporate configuration happening that we need to keep our eye on because the, okay, so the broader picture here is now that all of the big pharma companies are convinced that mRNA therapeutics and vaccines are the way to go. So they're all piling in on this stuff. Okay. For instance, Sanofi Pasteur now is putting up a like mRNA center of excellence, which is going to be their major sort of research hub for this stuff. They've been like late to this game. They're a, a major, uh, a plausible competitor in this market in the next couple of years because the market's not going away. Sorry to tell you that, but they're all piling in on these platform technologies. And from what I can gather internally, when senior management is being asked by the scientists who are affected by these supply shortages, what are we going to do about this? The response is, we're aware that this is a problem and we're going to look into it. And don't you worry your pretty little heads about it. So I, I think this is going to become much more acute. The people who are least connected to the process development happening like in the labs are all convinced that we need to all pile in on this single technology, which is going to put more strain on those supply chains. So that's the context, right? And at the same time, you have Pfizer and Moderna have somehow legally shanghaied these suppliers. So like we're talking about Thermo Fisher, Sartorius Stadium, the very big suppliers of fermenters, controllers, and components. They're all legally required to sell all of their filters, all of their components to Pfizer. So this is going to get really weird. And I'm not sure that the leadership of these their competitors fully understands the magnitude of the disparity that's been created here. There are a couple of extremely powerful players in this market right now. And a lot of ones that I think are, are not clear on what an effective response this is going to be. Okay. So let me see if I can translate a little bit of that because that was a lot all at once, which is great. That's what we want to deliver because I think we're getting close to a broader narrative here, but I want to make sure that we got the dynamic. So what it sounds like is the people that make this gear that you're talking about, the companies that you've listed off for creating vaccines or whatever, have basically, as you said, been shanghaied or totally strong-armed by these pharmaceutical behemoths into, they've basically press ganged them into industrial service, which means that we don't have 
the supplies or the ability to churn out other vaccines for other diseases. So to me, the metaphor that I think of is like how the flu disappeared last year, right? Where it was like all we were like, we were just looking at COVID kind of looks like the flu. And so it was like, oh, this is all just COVID. So in other words, yeah, we're just doing mRNA vaccines now. We're just doing the COVID vaccine. All these other vaccines, they don't exist. They don't matter to us. This isn't what's going on. And because they've secured these contracts and they can at least minimally sell the idea that mRNA is really successful. And look, I'm not vax denying here. I'm just talking about the way the marketing is going to work. They'll look like victors and they will create a new way forward into mRNA and they're poised to be the leading bleeding edge into monopolizing that type of production. Yeah, that's correct. And this is a type of production that is significantly more fragile than what has gone before, simply because it relies on so many more macromolecular components in the reaction to create the mRNA than a typical like cell-based fermentation. Okay, so these are cell-free fermentation systems, which means you have to make all of the enzymes that you put into the reaction in other cell-based systems. So we talk about that in the Patreon episode at some length. One thing that I did want to clarify there, it's not actually clear that Pfizer and Moderna, like Moderna has no market power, right? Like they've never delivered a a product before. They have other kinds of power, clearly, like Donald Rumsfeld has been on their board. That doesn't happen for no reason. They, They like Thermo Fisher and Sartorius Stadium three years ago did not give a shit about what Moderna thought about anything. But the Operation Warp Speed contracts were administered by a defense contractor called Advanced Technology International, which is one of those names which should always clue you in that it's probably got something to do with the CIA. (laughs) Yeah, it's been pretty open, openly known that Warp Speed relied heavily (laughs) on DARPA to get its work done, which means it's basically gooned up with the security state. Yeah, exactly. And so the initial explanation for that was something along the lines of like, we're really good at logistics here in the military. And so that's why we're offering our expertise. And then which also isn't necessarily wrong. It seems like every other logistics thing was coming apart. So it makes sense. The United States, instead of building a social democracy, built a military empire. And so the military is great at doing logistics. Yeah, they're fantastic at doing logistics. However, they didn't end up doing much vaccine logistics. So it's like, what were they doing? And uh, apparently this came to the attention of the Department of Defense that this was like very obvious. So they published an interview which basically revealed that what their role was program management and contracting expertise. So... (laughs) Yeah. Contracting expertise particularly now jumps out at me now that I know at least allegedly. So lawyers and middle managers is what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And probably not a little like guys in uniform showing up at certain meetings to impress the need for certain executives in perhaps Utah, other places to comply with the terms of these contracts, right? Like you're going to make money, we're going to make money. And if you don't like, there's going to be problems. I, I think that was probably involved there. And there's a very noticeable disconnect between the way things have been going in the Anglosphere and the rest of the world. The US, Canada, UK, Australia have been 
consistently reacting in a fairly extreme way, especially with lockdowns and, and things of this nature. And the way that the media has been treating the vaccines has been very interesting, right? There's very coordinated kinds of messaging that go out. There's very particular things that are reported on and other things are not. And it seems that, frankly, like some companies have the favor of the media and others do not. And if you look at where these uh, narratives are cropping up initially, it's often especially about like vaccine effectiveness and the effectiveness of particular vaccines, like particularly the Pfizer and Moderna, those narratives tend to crop up in like the Washington Post and the New York Times first, and then they're promulgated out from those centers. Okay, I want to stop there, though, because here's an interesting thing I've noticed, is that it seems like there are basically, there were for a while, laudatory things like, this is all great, mRNA, Awesome. Yeah. Rah, rah. We're seeing those everywhere, right? This is something AMLO talks about in a press conference where he was just like, yeah, we're not so sure about this booster shot stuff. This seems to be a big pharma op. So we're not really looking into that. Yeah. It seems like they want us on the hook for something and we know better at this point. But then as Delta has come into the frame, there seems to be a competing media narrative, which also has to do with the path dependency. Let's say how the PMC internally feels about the world, which is an apocalyptic and scary place. And then also what gets clicks, which is doomsaying. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the narrative, they've also been like, the vaccines actually don't really work. Almost. Like they've, it's, so it's almost like this weird ping-ponging between like ad copy and smashing the panic button until it makes your hand bleed. All of which has totally disincentivized all the people who are like, I'll just wait until it's not an emergency youth, uh, use authorization. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I I feel, okay, so first of all, when I first came on Exhaust to to talk about this, one of the first things that I said was that we were likely to need like boosters within nine months and that Mm -hmm. like variants cropping up was going to be a problem. And that was, I, I don't think there was really any kind of popular media coverage that involved anyone saying anything like that at that time. Yeah, I think the only reason I was prepared for it was because we talked about it. Yeah, just like, oh, they're doing the thing. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I I think part of it is because they didn't really prepare anyone for this eventuality. And now you have a very unusual kinds of kind of situation, right? Like I I mentioned um, in one of the later episodes that we did, the kind of evolutionary risk that is associated with uh, mass vaccination programs, which is that potentially you have problems with escape variants and potentially the lethality of the virus is hidden by a vaccine that reduces symptoms, but doesn't prevent transmission. And like Merrick's disease is usually the example that people talk. And then some people will say, okay, but so Merrick's disease is a disease in uh, factory farm chickens, sorry. But so people will say, no, chickens die of Merrick's disease because the vaccines work. And it's, yeah, that's the point, right? Like that you have to vaccinate all of your chickens against Merrick's disease yeah. forever now. That's just how it is. Factory farming. It's like yeah, that, it's so that's, uh, the Louis J.K. bit where he goes to see the doctor and because his ankle is messed up. And the doctor says, yeah, see how it's all like, black there it's just shitty now yeah he's just (laughs) so do these exercises and he's okay when do i stop he's like oh no that's just your life now you just do those 
Yeah, yeah. And obviously, that's not a situation that anyone wanted to contemplate in the first year of the pandemic. And there were very odd things, right? The, the BioNTech CEO gave an interview to like Business Insider. And it was only published on the Indian version, the Indian website for Business Insider, because he said that COVID is going to be with us for 10 years, and that we're not going to eliminate the pandemic for 10 years. So obviously, that was not the message that was intended to be promulgated in the Anglosphere. And it wasn't, right? Nobody quoted the BioNTech CEO saying that, although like probably he's in a better position than anyone else to know how his acting actually works. And all of this is, okay, you're going to have to cut this, I'm, I'm lost. What, was, what were you talking about just before this? Yeah, so uh, we were basically talking about how there seemed to be two different narratives in the media, which was like, Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, everything yeah, yeah. rules. And then now that Delta's around, it's, oh, actually nothing rules. It's all as bad as it was, like where five masks were locking down again. Exactly. So because this eventuality of the variants and the possible consequences of it wasn't really communicated clearly, now there's like very confused messaging, right? In particular, around Delta, like this whole rush to get everyone vaccinated with a vaccine that by their own account doesn't stop transmission. So it's okay. And there is also been in the media, like Fauci was forced to address the Israeli data, which he did by deferring the question, basically, but he had to answer a question about why does it look like in Israel that people who got vaccinated in January are like no longer protected against Delta, right? Or something like 15% efficacy or something like that. And the obvious answer is that the the vaccines have a fairly limited duration of efficacy and that's to be expected and that's why none of them were uh, have been approved before that's <laughs> yeah there have been problems with the with the duration of efficacy it's very difficult for us to inspect that because uh, failed trials are not published so this is why it's hard to form a prior on like how likely these things are to work and for how long what we can speculate anyhow is that the early problems with the mrna vaccines that people who say they're you know going to kill you point to were about toxicity and those were resolved through the use of pseudouridines and other design methods to reduce the immune response to the mRNA vaccine itself, which we mentioned on the Patreon in more detail. But the later problems were, were not probably not toxicity. In other words, the reason that more recent mRNA vaccines have not made it through trials, particularly like Moderna's, who have, they've done trials with many of these, it's probably not toxicity. It's probably just that they didn't work all that. Way. So like that is becoming, that conclusion is becoming very difficult to dance around and avoid. And so you're coming up with all these stories now that are just like the CDC is quoting the Washington Post saying that 99.9% of people who have been hospitalized as a result of COVID are unvaccinated. And you go and look at how did they derive that figure? And so by assuming that the vaccine is 99.9% effective. <laughs> you know, so it's just, Wait, seriously? It, 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 yeah, so the, a number of those figures are from quote-unquote modeling that just assume that the early efficacy estimates are accurate, which it's just like forever, which is obviously what's in, in contestation is like how long do, does protection last? See, this is the problem that I think is going on here is that I know I'm going to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but the problem is just basically honesty and transparency. Because 
Fauci and the media and all these things have given so many conflicting messages. And it's on record that Fauci was basically like adjusting things based on how he thought the public would receive him rather than what he thought was efficacious. So he's doing like noble lies. And I'm like, yeah, that really undermines the public trust in any of this. And like, I'm for the vaccine or whatever, but now I don't really have an argument against somebody who's going to go, how do you know that works? That's bullshit. Or they're all lying to you. And I'm like, well, they've done a lot of that. So I can't really say that's wrong. Yeah, it's, and have to take this on, on the background of industry behavior as well, right? Yeah. This is not new. This is to be expected. This is how these companies operate. And, you know, I think you really do have to be cynical about the way that this sector works and what its uh, broader place is in society. I think we can we can say even that potentially mRNA vaccines and mRNA ther- therapeutics are the future of biopharmaceuticals, right? Like that Indeed, there are good reasons to pursue these, which we can see just in terms of the, the speed of the response, right? Like it's, it would not be possible to get vaccines out the door this quickly, nor to produce boosters that are customized for the latest variant, whatever, on the, the kinds of timescales that they're talking about without the sort of industrial advantages that the mRNA production platform affords you. We can have that without, I think being too rosy-eyed about or, or having rose-colored glasses about the, like, for instance, the motives or the competency of the people who are going to affect this transition. The, the reality is that this does, especially in the Anglosphere, look like, if you want, like a deep state, like military industrial type, a complex type of project. And those tend not to go that well. You know? like yeah, just, yeah, totally. They just, you know, how the results that we see from allowing our elites, our NGO complex, et cetera, et cetera, to manage the the various imperial wars that we have or the other kinds of problems that we have in society are the kinds of results that we should expect from these vaccine programs, quite frankly. Right. This is what I've... So there are all these riots going on in France right now, right, over vaccine passports or whatever. Yeah. And France is basically like, you're not going out to eat unless you get a vaccine and you're going to show the car. It's very like French like European <laughs> biopolitical state thing to do. Like, yeah. They have the coordination and the administrative power to do that. One of the things, so I've been working on a piece that I'm hoping to get published. Mike has seen an early draft of it, but I came mm-hmm. across this study by these sociologists who took a look at how America was going to enforce civil rights law after 1964. And this is without taking a per like a position on like the efficacy of those laws or whatever. They're just looking at like, how was this going to happen? And like, how did it happen? So they looked this study was done in like 1998. They looked at almost like 300, I think it was 279 is the actual figure, different organizations. And one of the things they realized is that at first the American government was like, okay, you got to do this, right? Like you can't have racist hiring practices, practices. You can't have sexist hiring practices, just the whole run. Eventually, the sociologists noticed that as that administrative like impetus like waned and the corporations, these organizations trained up an HR staff, the HR staff internalized the logic of the civil rights regime to their own managerial ends around how to make the business more efficient. So it stopped being about, are we hiring equitably and these things? It started being about, 
how do we use this to cut corners, basically? <laughs> but I'm little, maybe a little bit overselling that. I'll have to go through with a finer tooth comb. I'll have some humility in that interpretation of what they looked at. But the important takeaway was that one of the things that's been difficult for people who are trying to theorize the American state to consider is the way in which it is administratively weak because the constitution does not allow for the government to just directly run industry. And Americans are also like culturally very suspicious of that. So it's administratively weak, but normatively very strong. Yeah. So one of the things that we see is that rather than someone taking responsibility for like everybody gets a vaccine, we're doing this, you're getting it. That's just the way it is. You see a lot of, I think like Disney and Walmart are like, okay, if you want to work, you got to get the vaccine and we'll do it. Like they'll just right. elect to do it and enforce the norm. You'll see the NGO complex and the media use moral suasion to do that mm-hmm. or whatever. And that really involves like a lot of histrionic coercion stuff that's typical yeah. on the internet, but that's part of it. And that creates, it feels like everything's diffuse. Like, you don't really know who's responsible for what, like, which guidelines are the right ones. Who do I actually look to as an authority figure here? And you seem to have the uniquely cowardly class of politicians with zero moral courage who are also just baked into a system that gives them no incentives to rise to the occasion, let's say, running everything. Yeah. So... These seem to be like compounding problems. On the one hand, we have all the cultural and like institutional stuff we've talked about and the class stuff that's playing out here in the Anglosphere, especially in America. And then on the other hand, we have the given the time horizons, the way the physical structure of building these things works, not building, but creating these vaccines works. It's very fraught and fraying. Yeah, I think that's true. And this goes um, back to what you were saying about the sort of discursive chaos that has now emerged in the wake of the Delta variant. And you you have essentially the same arguments being deployed like for and against the vaccine. The regulators or actually the scientific advisory group on emergencies in the UK is now talking about the evolutionary risk and saying like, maybe there could be a mutant that will kill a third of cases or something like that. Total so to, fear mongering. <laughs> so yeah, bad. Just, yeah. In, in order to, to advocate for further lockdowns and, and these kinds of things. So like any data set is now being used to advocate solely for whatever the commitment was a year ago. Like it just, things can't change. Nobody can admit that they were wrong or that this strategy mm-hmm. has flaws or like any of these kinds of things. Yeah. And I think for me, this is part of why like the parapolitical kinds of explanations that go into like the origins of the pandemic and the extent to which the military industrial complex was prepared for it and all these kinds of things are remain interesting and and persuasive to people is because it's very difficult to make sense of how things could have gone wrong in this particular way. It's it's not that we had a disaster where a pandemic came in and just wiped out a ton of people and now society's just all messed up and stuff like this. Like specific people benefited, specific organizations benefited in enormously outsized ways. And I think it's very difficult to have a persuasive explanation for what's going on and how it is that things are so consistently wrong in a way that benefits 
for instance, the tax sector, without asking questions about what is the tax sector's relationship to the military agencies that were, you know, involved in contracting Operation Wars Feed and these kinds of things. <laughs> like, why is it the Washington Post in particular has been uh, so instrumental in forming pro-vaccine narratives and pro-Pfizer narratives? Could it be that the Washington Post is a historically pro-CIA or CIA disinformation mm -hmm. dissemination outlet that's owned by Jeff Bezos right now, who is a major contractor with the CIA and all these kinds of things, like, could that have something to do with it? It's hard to see how you can just totally wipe all this stuff away as a conspiracy theory, right? Some people's interests are being served and it's not clear who or why or what the networks are that are managing to uh, get their messages out so effectively and suppress others so effectively. Yeah, I would say that rather than having the perspective of last time you were on, like you and I were talking about modeling, right? Yeah. And that I've been thinking, reflecting a lot on that episode mm -hmm. about basically creating different like internal mental models of like how to receive information. And I think what we want to have is a lack of innocence. What we don't want to have is... Uh, pathetic reactivity either way. So where it's just, this is all, you don't want it to go full Alex Jones and you also don't want to go full Washington Post because this is also unfair. So like Very much, yeah. players in the game can shift. It might not end up where even the people who are running the game think it's going to go. That's an important thing. This is dynamic as it's unfolding. But I would like to point out like two things that I see happening here. Convergence, let's say, that is based on some of the work that we've been doing on the show so far. So when you and I were talking last, we talked about the figure of the crank. And the crank is the mm -hmm. person who gets stuck in the maze of their own model. And mm -hmm. eventually it becomes a, becomes a representational tautology that perpetuates confirmation bias and it's often an ideological tool rather than a rigorous scientific working through of the empirics at hand. Okay. Then we have the figure of like the emotivist in Alistair McIntyre, mm -hmm. where we live in a society where we don't have or don't feel we have or believe we have a shared tradition of ethics. So instead, we have competing internally consistent ethical paradigms that can't be reconciled, evaluated, or adjudicated because they're in internally consistent and conflictual. So what that redounds to is people saying, you need to do this because this is the right thing to do. But really, if you just like peer under the curtain or under the mask a little bit, it's what they're really revealing is just their preference for what you should do. And their tactic for doing that is obviously basically to get emotionally under your skin. These things have basically totally started to intermingle with each other because you start to realize that the ethical crank, let's call it, and the model crank basically have to result to, have to default to the same type of argument, which yeah. is a pathetic, a scaremongering, moralizing argument. Yeah. To discipline you into accepting their preference 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely, I, I guess this is the thing in, in saying that I think some of the, the parapolitical stuff, like it's easy to see why the confusion makes those narratives appealing. I think also the other set of alternative explanations that we've been looking at as containing some explanatory value that we might want to add to whatever kind of like generally acceptable narrative of the pandemic has are the kind of more, I don't even want to say class-based, but like the biopolitical explanations that look at the interests of large groups of people and like their psychological formation. So a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, the culture of narcissism and so on, makes the, in particular, the professional managerial class, the, you see this in particular among the enumerate doctors that we've been pumping out and importing for a long time, that they're very susceptible to both engaging or being persuaded by this kind of argument as well as engaging in this kind of argument. And this is just not an accident, right? Like the existing medical system, you can, I think everyone should go read Jeff Schellenberger's article, How We Forgot Foucault, because we all need a yeah. reminder. A friend of the show. Uh, shout out, Jeff. Great piece. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And, and very true that the people who actually know the most about Foucault and who are most familiar with his work are now conspicuously silent about uh, its implications. But the, Foucault's tracing of the genealogy of the medical system, of psychiatry, of the various sort of disciplinary dispositifs, he calls them, of the bourgeois dictatorship that follows the slow sort of dissolution, or well, actually, rapid in historical terms, dissolution of the classical monarchy in Europe, that narrative tells you why this is happening, right? Like this, we live under a dictatorship of the bourgeois and this is how it works. This is how it disciplines life. And the kinds of things I think that Foucault, Agamben have said about biopower are, have never been more relevant. And if you understand those things, then you at least understand why you can get, if you don't like or find uninformative, like narratives about particular people like what is Fauci up to or what could defense contractors be up to you can get a sense of how did it even come to be that vaccines and the sort of cold war defense apparatus got caught up in one another particularly after 9-11 right you can go look at what Agamben has to say about 9-11 and you can see all of the resonances that has for right now in terms of creating states of exception creating the homo sacer people who are outside of the, the law and can therefore be sacrificed and so on and so forth. These are alternative explanations that I think, at least in this kind of weird corner of the internet, are getting serious looks to add to whatever kind of material narrative you may have formed. Mm -hmm. I've also been thinking about it this way, right? Because I'm not super fluent in Foucault. I'm not super fluent in Gambin. I know I have, from what I have read of them, I have some like disagreements, but I, I'm just not in a place where I can like discount or promote what they're saying. What I can say is that back to our modeling thing, we want to have different models of ex explanation to compare to see what yeah. happens here. So to immediately discount whatever they're saying is like reactionary or whatever. It's okay. It might be, but does that mean that everything that happens within that explanatory paradigm is like just untrue on the face of it? Like that seems imprudent to me and not very thoughtful in approach. Another way I've been thinking about it is we, John and I just did the episode for the Patreon on Rossier and Plato. And 
one of the things that I've been reflecting on as you and I have been talking is Socrates' use of aporia, which really comes to the fore in the Mino that we talked about. And aporia is just being in such a state of confusion that you don't know what's up or down, left or right, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. And through the dialectic, Socrates would bring people into a place where conventional wisdom no longer benefited them. Mm. And they felt rudderless. They were in aporia saying, you've torpedo fished me. I'm like numb Mm. to how this, to, to what we're talking about now, because I'm so confused. In Plato's dialogue, it seems clear that Socrates' aporia is against the state. But what happens if you have a state that generates aporia to its own advantage? Yeah. And that could be another way to consider how this is going. Okay, let's say you're the type of person that doesn't buy homo sacer. You're like, I don't know what the fuck that is. I don't want to know. You don't buy genealogical explanations. That might be another way to think about exactly how this parapolitical, as you say, like element is working, Mm -hmm. right? You can take that model and say, okay, I can see this right now and appreciate how some of these power dynamics are working out at a discursive level. Yeah, and I, I think this is this is something that I always go back and forth with. There's clearly an extent to which coordinated messaging campaigns have taken over much of the U.S. media on most of the topics of national interest. And I think, as you noted in in your to be published piece, local media has been decimated. Right? These coordinated, you know, messaging campaigns appear to have been on some level, like rather sloppy. And I think certainly if you look at Fauci's emails, you get all the classic marks of someone who's doing perception management and kind of pursuing local political ends rather than actually dealing with the problem in a way that would give rise to a coherent narrative. So that's, it's hard to say like the intent of all this flip-flopping and weirdness was to create confusion and so on and so forth. But even if that's true, that it wasn't the intent to do that, it's still very clear that there are networks and elements of our society, institutions within our society that benefit from it anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If it's an accident, it's happy for that. It certainly is. And it's interesting that a lot of accidents line up in such a way that it benefits these particular power structures. And I think a lot of the questions that I have about what's going on are, are related to that kind of like incompetence, malice kind of calculation. And yeah, like iron law of institutions type of stuff, like path dependency too. Like you can't just suddenly do something totally different because the moment sure. needs, because you've built a groove into something. So there's a lot of that happening there too. And it also reminds me of what Gore Vidal said. He was just like class conspiracy. What class conspiracy? Yeah. They don't need to conspire. Yeah. They're just yeah. being them. You know? Yeah. 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 I, I guess that's where we are. And I, I don't know what people's like overall kind of feeling is anymore because it, everything's been so swamped by these messaging and, and psychological operations campaigns. And it's, it, it's very difficult to, it's easy for me to talk to people in industry or who have a statistical background about what's going on because I can just stick to like publications and like the mm-hmm. recent history of the industry and this kind of stuff. The like people who are outside of that 
usually find what I'm saying like very startling or like weird. And it's been impressive, the kind of the amnesia, as well as the confusion that has been seemingly induced by these narratives, by this flip-flopping. It's very difficult for people to even acknowledge that three years ago, it was like a fairly standard kind of left position to believe that like pharma was often up to no good and often morally compromised. It's, it's the same industry that produced the Sackler family. Right. Like you can't just be like, okay, well, that didn't happen. We aren't yeah. dealing with any downstream effects from that. And again, like what we're asking for is healthy distrust. Mm-hmm. That's the standard I have for myself. Like the physical materials are going to be the physical materials, Right. So like the vaccine's going to do what it's going to do. And if it decouples us from death for six months, that's great for six months, however long that's going to last. That doesn't mean that the interests don't play out. And even that the kind of institutional logics that were set up long before our time, maybe determining the, the kinds of options that are available to actors in such a way that it appears to be a really like malign coordinated weird Mm -hmm. type of conspiracy, but is in fact just so constrained by the prior decisions that have been made that we end up with this like really weird compulsion to to do these things. Yeah, exactly. Because I think what's interesting to me, and we've talked about this before, is that the genealogies can be really compelling also because they have this great ability to track ideological shifts over time, Mm -hmm. which is something that I, when done really well, I think that's of great service. That's one of the powerful elements of that model. One of the things that I wish we could add to that is also just like some like rules of thumb of institutions. Like what happens when you have, again, I keep using this word path dependency, but it's so important, right? Or like to Lep's point that like domain dominance becomes domain dependence. You get really good at something. It's the thing that you're doing. That skill set is what you come to depend on. That that isn't even necessarily about ideology, though it can recreate and reinforce ideologies. It may be an outgrowth of them, but it's also something that you can just see that like materially will limit the amount of choices you can make Mm -hmm. because institutions are living things, even if they're ossified. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I I think just maybe to give a concrete example of one place where I think that may have played out. One one question that I've been asking myself for many months now is what happened in the first couple of months? If If Western public health authorities were willing to go to the extent that they've gone, why didn't they do it to begin with? at a much smaller scale at the airports and at the borders? You know, and I think there's this funny kind of feeling that I have about this, that in fact, this, the initial response was about the institutional memory of the swine flu pandemic, where large swathes of the the high level WHO people got burnt by like fairly mainstream liberal institutions who investigated the response to that swine flu pandemic, or actually may have been the bird flu pandemic is the last one. (laughs) Right. Either way, previous... 
pandemic. Yeah, yeah. It has has slipped my mind. But in any case, the ultimate reportage on that in that formed like the mainstream liberal opinion about this afterwards was negative and suggested that there was at least the appearance of impropriety from many or most of those officials in terms of like their commercial interests, their recommendations to buy governments to buy large stocks of Tamiflu and other kinds of treatments from corporations that they were connected to and so on and so forth. And so I think part of the reason that they wanted to downplay the the pandemic initially is just a kind of institutional uh, memory or hangover from that experience where there actually would be better if we appeared to be playing this down initially. Because if it does get really bad later, at least we won't have been accused of overplaying it and we won't end up with any type of criminal sanction or regulatory. So we had set up a, a tendency maybe to, to downplay just because the they tried to do what they're actually doing now last time and got their fingers singed a little bit. And so they decided, we'll wait and see over this one. We'll, we'll see how big it gets before we go into exploiting our conflicts of interest or whatever it is that's happening. So so there's that, which I think it is an important element because the press has such an important role to play here. And early on, they were like, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Almost universally. It was like, I, I remember just like screaming at the television for, it was, I, I very rarely watch television and I just started watching it around the start of the pandemic just to see what people were saying about it because I was just reading things in weird hidey holes online and overwhelmingly the public discourse that was being pushed was like this is not going to be a problem and moreover thinking that it is going to be a problem and just really weird things. I, I always think about the planes coming in to Canada from Wuhan after the Chinese had shut down travel internally. And people were asking, okay, so what are we doing at the airports? And the response is literally like, we put up posters in English and Mandarin that say, turn yourself over to a customs official if you have the following symptoms. That's not the hell is going to do that. Yeah, no, like nobody is ever going to do that. That's absurd. Especially if you have any, if your primary experience of like state power is with the Chinese state, you're definitely not going to do that. So I, I, I don't know. Yeah, in a place um, where you might not have like total command over the language uh, on yeah. top of what you assume is going to happen. I yeah. wouldn't either. Like yeah. that's just doing the math. Just looking at it. There's the other thing that seems to have gotten lost, right? We're already like not talking about it anymore. And even though it continues to be a problem, the bottlenecks at the ports are real. The, pri- the problems with prices of goods, those are real issues. They're going to affect everyday people. They're going to keep happening. Right. It's as if we've forgotten the level of like neglect of institutions and supplies that happened before this pandemic played out. Yeah. So that's a whole other element here. Like it turns out respirators weren't even the the perhaps the thing that we really needed. Not respirator masks, the actual like ventilator. Ventilators, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. ventilator guys. Yeah. Uh weren't even necessarily the right play. Thank God, because we didn't, we really lucked out on that one, it turned out. But that's not really the type of thing you want to hope to be lucky on. There weren't masks, there weren't this, that, or the other. Right now, there's a whole debate about like masking and how that's supposed to work. I'm not going to adjudicate that here too. We're not going to touch every single hot topic of fucking coronavirus on this episode. But what's interesting to me is I was seeing some stuff, not enough to cite here, but enough to gab and bullshit about it, Mm. uh, was that uh, the U.S. is just, yeah, anyway, back to importing masks from China. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, I, this is, and it makes sense, right? Because it's not like there's anybody with their hand on the rudder 
that's going to discipline anyone and there's no political will and no one really minding the store to be like, no, that's not right. It shouldn't be like that. Yeah. And again, that goes back to something those sociologists were looking at. Like the administrative power to do that is like really lacking. We have the administrative power to do a lot of things in America. We could throw tons of people in prison for decades. We did that. We, we can we can totally destroy other countries. We've got tons of administrative power to do that. But the administrative power to figure out how to countermand the outsized, unchecked power of major corporations is something that's really worrying. Yeah. Especially yeah. when you think about it as those corporations produce people who then go out and create the NGO complex with their largesse. This was uh, RIP, his account, Shia LaBeefsteak's whole thing that like the private sector, like capital and the civil society had basically swallowed government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And these are the same people who are staffing the regulatory agencies and so on and so forth now. So, yeah, that's the other thing too. You see that, that in other areas, right? Again, I'm going to default to energy here, but if you take a look mm -hmm. at Michigan, Governor Granholm did her whole thing to roll out uh, a bunch of like wind and stuff like that. Almost all of those countries went, oh, companies went belly up, mm -hmm. right? That did not pan out for them. But she did succeed in getting people into the like utility regulatory bodies or whatever they are in Michigan, who've now patterned the grid in a way that, as we've talked about with Meredith Angwin, really advantages intermittent renewable energy with dispatchable natural gas, right. really disservices things like the Palisades nuclear plant in Michigan, which is now on the chopping block. Yeah. And I, I think this is one of the things that's been so interesting to me about the, the pandemic and the kind of wild chaotic, ongoing realignments that we see happening now, where we have this unexpected confluence of interests that are based on calling winners, right? Wind and solar are going to get built out at huge scale, not because there's really compelling arguments for them, but because they've been called as a winner by players right, that yeah. benefit from Right. The game. <laughs> the, from the game, from the volatility that they create specifically. And I, I think you pointed this out, other people have pointed this out, that wind and solar are being built out mainly in... Former FERC chairs that pointed that out, the nine former FERC chairs wrote to the existing FERC chairs and said, right. if you want to decarbonize, you're going to have to turn everything into an RTO, an organized market, because that's where we've built out 80% of our new... Are renewables because that is the exact market structure that benefits them. Yeah. And, and they're, they're not wrong. They're wrong that it'll decarbonize, but they're not yeah. wrong about the other aspects of it. No, no, that is, and that is the rationale. And the looking at over the last couple of weeks, documents from the New England ISO, which is the, the grid kind of mm -hmm. uh, regulatory authority. And it's, it's which is the like, one that Meredith Angwin works out, looks at in her book. Sure. That, which we had her on. You guys can go check that out if you're new. We've gotten some new followers. I think that's episode 33 or 34. Uh, remarkable interview, but... Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure she points this out in her book. They're very open about what's going on in that market, right? Like the traders who are making their money on volatility are doing so in... Uh, 
a very restricted part of the market. And if you look at like where specifically, because you bid or offer virtual power, right? Like the traders who are doing this are not actually generating or consuming any power. They are virtual power. This is a secondary market, right? Like an option or something like that. So the nodes in the, at the, in the grid that they're trading at are the wind power nodes. They're the nodes to which the wind farms are connected because that's where all the volatility is. Exactly. Because you can bet on them going on or off. And right. like sometimes you'll have days where it's, oh, we're going to get like 60% capacity factor. And then it's 35. Well, right. somebody, there are people on either sides of, side of that option. And those people have nothing to do with the, the actual functioning of the market per se, like the physical material transfer power. They're, there are two they're grids. Not- there's the financial legal grid, and then there's the infrastructural material grid. This is another part of what's going on in the coronavirus response. So the significant kind of part of the biopolitical narrative is about the colonization of sort of ordinary functions of daily human life by professional institutions and bourgeois institutions. The management of ever more detailed kinds of aspects of your life. And we now have this happening in the context of a highly financialized economy. So what ultimately people want to, like the markets that are being created now around coronavirus are never going away, like until there's like major changes in terms Mm -hmm. of like mRNA therapeutics and stuff like this. Like these companies are all in on this stuff. A lot of the like vaccine passports and all of the sort of peripheral markets which are being built up around this are about data collection, are about trading derivatives that are based on health, that are about financializing health outcomes and trying to fund health initiatives in the private sector through uh, tradable derivatives and these kinds of things. Like there is that layer also in the Corona venue, right? So this isn't solely like a biopolitical story, but it's a biopolitical story that's enmeshed within this network of compromised regulators and of speculative financial capital, which has to get its piece too, right? So it's it's very complicated and it's hard to understand. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to piece through the different complexities of it. And this is an evolving story. So what I hope is that we've given you guys some material stuff, we've given you some philosophical stuff, and we've given you some historical stuff that will help you put together helpful models for understanding what's happening to us every day here. Because again, like I can't come to you with a pat narrative. What I can do is gesture to all of these things that we're watching happen. We'll have to figure it out for ourselves. So with all that said, Mike, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, letting me talk out loud for a while, and hopefully we don't get banned. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Stay safe out there, guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye.